0: are listening to the Diary Discoveries podcast brought to you by
1: Sally'sDiaries.com. Now here's your hosts, Sally Ivey and Jeff Richards.
0: Welcome back to part four of The Shipwreck and the Legendary Passenger.
1: In this episode, we're going to reveal the name of our author, If this is the first Diary Discoveries podcast you've listened to, and you'd like the full experience of trying to guess who he is, then you should go back to part one. If not, we're going to move on.
0: We are. And you know, um, there are several clues that we gave as far as who this man is. And some of those that really stood out were that he had an office in Sri Lanka and an estate, that he inspected factories and his estate, Dambatana. Um, I think if you were to go to Sri Lanka and look up that estate, you'd pretty much guess who this man was. So before we tell you his name, Jeff, would you like something to drink? I would love a cup of tea. Well, we have Lipton's tea. Sir Thomas Lipton's tea? We certainly do. And that's also the diary that we have. Exactly. So remember at the very beginning, we said there were three major points, and one was he was on the cover of Time magazine. Well, on November 4th, 1924, Sir Thomas Lipton was their front cover. He was also knighted by Queen Victoria, and his last name, Lipton, is known to millions around the world.
1: Indeed it is. Well, you may recall in the last episode, we skipped over one of the dates at the end of the diary, and the reason we did that was because it contained a big clue, and we didn't want to give it away to everyone yet who may have been playing along, but Mm -hmm. this is what April 23rd says, weather not so rough, but still good breeze blowing, Anstral Gazette published by Mr. Sheraton, also verses on Lipton's tea, run for the day 326. And that is the only place in this diary where the word T is mentioned or Lipton.
0: And by that time, I knew it was Sir Thomas Lipton's diary. I've always, I've stated that I never read a diary at the end first. I always go chronologically. And my research had pretty much concluded and I came to all the facts that I knew that this was his diary. So I want to go through a few of the points um, or how I came across that this was Sir Thomas Lipton's diary. In the beginning, I was just drawn to this diary because it was a shipwreck. And so that's what I started studying first. I would put in the Orotava on the web in 1897. And when you do that, a lot of different old newspaper articles come up about the wreck itself. Also photos. So it was a pre- it was pretty well known that this ship had wrecked. At that time, I still didn't know. I knew he was a prominent person. But then when they landed in Sri Lanka, um, I thought, well, maybe he's from Sri Lanka. Until, you know, he started talking about having his office there, uh, his bungalows. I didn't know he was from any other place in the world. I thought, well, this is his home. And that kind of threw me a little bit. Then comes the entry about Lord and Lady Brettlebane. And that's when I started really piecing things together. So my next step was to look them up, put 1897 while I was looking them up. And sure enough, I started coming across articles of them visiting Sir Thomas Lipton in Sri Lanka. I still, I wasn't 100% sure, but it gave me Brettelbane, and Sri Lanka, and then Orotava, and Lipton. And those four words, things just started popping. So the real surprise came when I put the SS Orotava wreck 1897 and Lipton into the search engines. And I came up with this book, Sir Thomas Lipton, The Man Who Invented Himself. And in this book was the following quote. There seemed no lengths to which Lipton would not go in promoting himself. On a trip to Ceylon in 1897, he sailed through the Red Sea on the SS Orotava, which ran aground on a sandbank near Razzleton. Although several dows came close out of curiosity, none made any attempt to help the stricken vessel. In an attempt to float the ship off the reef, much of the cargo was jettisoned, and ever the opportunist, Lipton paid the now idle engine room crew to cut a stencil and provide him with a paint pot and brush. Armed with these, he went on deck and, to the vast amusement of the passengers and crew, painted the words, Drink Lipton's Tea, on as many bales, cases, and crates as he could before they were consigned to the shallows around the ship. Months later, he heard of the Jetsam from the Orotava being recovered. Quote, By Arabs and other tribes on the Red Sea coast. Whether they had the good sense to follow the advice to drink my tea, I cannot say. So,
1: the book that Sally just quoted from Sir Thomas Lipton, the man who invented himself, was written by James McKay and published in 1998. Well, Sally, Lipton didn't uh, write about this incident in his diary.
0: No, if you could remember back to some of the excerpts that we read. You remember him talking about throwing stuff overboard, even the crabs and boxes and stuff, but there was no mention of him stenciling anything. And I I wondered about that myself. When I first read this article, I hadn't really done a whole lot of research yet on Lipton. But the more research I did, the more we looked into his history, the more I realized the reason why he did not write it in his personal diary.
1: Yeah, he was um, recorded as telling a reporter that I promote my business, not myself. But also, it seems that the two were one and the same. And I'm sure that uh, there was a part to him that really enjoyed this uh, good publicity that came from the advertising and the stunts and the things written about him. The other book that we've been using for reference about Lipton's life is called The Lipton Story, and it was written by Alec Waugh, published in 1950. And he also did not include any narrative about the uh, stenciling the cargo boxes and throwing them overboard. So I'm just curious about where James McKay got his reference to that incident. I mean, I believe it certainly could have happened because we now know more about Lipton and it's totally believable that he would have done
0: something like that. I think if Lipton would have written it in his diary, it would have been out of character. It's his personal diary, and he just wasn't, as you'll learn, he just was not that kind of man to boast about himself. Even every passage that we read and quoted from, he wasn't boasting at all. He said a few comments, like Lord and Lady B were very pleased with, you know, the situation that he presented to them. But no, I think that would have been more of a boasting, but I do believe it did happen. I I really do. It seems likely
1: well, okay, we're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we're going to transition into telling you some things about Lipton that we've learned, and it, the things that we discovered really brought him back to life, because all
0: I really knew about him was tea. And that's he was so much more than that.
1: So much more.
0: Yes, starting from his childhood on.
1: If you'd like to drop us a line, you can do that at DiaryDiscoveries at gmail.com. Welcome back, everybody. We've had our Lipton's tea, and now we'll continue on. We'll talk about Thomas Lipton's childhood. He um, lived with his family in, in Glasgow, and they had a small, small grocery store. And his mom was pretty smart. She said, you know what? We could get better stuff and be able to sell and still make a profit if we cut out the middleman. So she would get produce, meats, dairy from the farmers directly and then sell them at a price that was fair to the people. They could afford it. So they always had people in their shop. Lipton loved it as a kid. He loved the activity. And he so enjoyed it. It really made him who he was, I think, just that early beginning.
0: I think so, too.
1: So he helped out, but then at age 10, he left school because they were making money, but they really weren't doing great. They were just getting by, and he thought he should help his family out financially. So he got a job as a store clerk and went to school at night for a while. While he was doing the clerk jobs in town, he would get to the harbor as Mm -hmm. often as he could because it was close by. And he loved the harbor. That was another thing. He liked seeing what was happening down there, the activity. He liked to hear the sailors talk, and I'm sure he heard some choice words. I'm
0: sure he did Spent time on the ships, probably helping them out on the docks and stuff. He did everything he could. Mm
1: -hmm. But he always, like it said in the book, that he was there daily Mm -hmm. down at the harbor. So he gained all that experience. And then when he was 13, he got a job on a ship that went daily between Glasgow and Belfast. And in that experience, you know, he gained a lot of his seamanship mm-hmm. and understanding. He also, when he was a kid, they, him and his buddies had a little yacht club, they called it, where he was the Commodore and they would race their little boats that they made in puddles and stuff like I that. Love that. Yeah, he was the Commodore.
0: And you know, that just coincides with what we read in the diary about him having such knowledge about shipping. We had mentioned that's kind of a clue. And that's where it all started, really.
1: Yeah, because we'll tell you later what he was really known for uh, in that regard, Mm -hmm. as far as his nautical stuff. So then after that, he decides, I'm going to go to America, and I'm going to make my fortune.
0: And what age was he?
1: He was 15.
0: 15 years old. And as a mother of four children, I can't imagine my son saying at 15 years old, I'm going to go to America on a ship.
1: With eight bucks in your pocket. Yes. And they didn't know anybody. So he crosses the ocean. He may have had a job as a cabin boy to get there. Uh, We couldn't uh, substantiate that. Once he arrives in New York, It's right at the end of the Civil War.
0: About 1865.
1: Yes. There's a lot of stuff going on, but things are winding down as far as the factories for the war effort, and a lot of soldiers are returning home, so jobs were super scarce. And uh, it was very expensive even then. So he found out that there was plenty of opportunity down in the South. So he left and went down there, and he worked in the tobacco fields in Virginia. He worked in the rice fields in... South Carolina. He even had a job as a firefighter where he was able to make some pretty good money fighting a fire. But once it was out, you know, he was back at the fields again. Uh, Then he went further south. He had a job in New Orleans, maybe doing some sales. All of this stuff that he did gave him an experience and a background. So then he did an unusual thing in that most people that came across from Europe to America, never returned back to Europe. And he missed his mom dearly. He had saved up $500, and he had some ideas in his head. He had been exposed to American advertising. He saw things that he'd never seen in Scotland, and he decided, I can do some of this. So he returned. He bought his mom a barrel of flour and a rocking chair. And when he arrived back in Scotland, he arrived at a time when everybody was at work. So this is one of the moments where he showed some of his promotional flourish and he waited until people were returning home. He hired a cab. They strapped the barrel of flour on the rocking chair up on top. And he sat in the back as it drove him down the road where he lived. He was waving to all his friends and everybody that he knew, I'm back, I'm back. And and they got to see everything. And so it was uh, like he came back as a success. So like I stated earlier, he learned about advertising in New York, uh, in the big city. It really wasn't a thing in Britain. They just didn't do a lot of that. So he had these ideas. He starts working for his parents again in their shop. And he's full of energy. He wants to have another shop. And his parents were kind of like, well, hey, we're doing good. You're going to get this someday. It'll provide for you. We don't really want to do that. And he said, no, I think we could do it. We could, we can make a go of this. So he worked and saved, worked and saved. And he eventually opened up a second shop. He worked so hard that often he would sleep in the shop because it just saved time because he was going to be right back there in the morning. And it was then that he started doing his promotional advertising. He really enjoyed the children that would come by the shop, and so he did things like put comics on the windows from the inside so they could read them on the outside, and he put them down low enough so they could see them. So there'd be these children out around the outside of the shop looking in, reading these comics. Then he did things like he created or he had created, the world's largest cheese.
0: The world's largest cheese.
1: (laughs) And he promoted it. like He ran ads saying, it's coming, it's coming. And people were, what's coming? And by the time this huge, enormous cheese arrived from America, I mean, it was a special effort to get this thing made. It was. At the time, it was the largest cheese in the world. And he's got everybody waiting for this thing to come. And when it arrives, they uh, moved it from the ship to the shop, with the greatest amount of fanfare Mm -hmm. possible. And people were just amazed by this thing. The large cheeses that he created became a Christmas tradition. And people were waiting for them all year. It was a big success.
0: It was. And you know, another thing that's real fun to look up on the web, because we've been getting comments about people going onto the web and looking things up, like the ship and stuff. And you will see... Wonderful pictures of Lipton storefronts on the web. There's several vintage shots, and you can see how his advertising played a big part in what he did.
1: He was convinced that there should be a Lipton shop in every town. And so as the years went by, it was build a shop, get another shop going, then start another one. And he kept doing it over and over and over So, he was always looking for opportunities to promote the shop. And he had these cartoons. He had a whole ship made of butter that was displayed in the window. Then he did something that didn't quite work out very well. And they were called the Lipton Notes. So, he had created these coupons basically that looked very much like an English pound note. But if you looked closely, you would see there was Lipton written. It was good for bacon good for ham, Uh, and that's what he sold a lot of in his shops. It was bacons, hams, eggs, dairy products, the cheeses, the butters, things like that. But the Lipton Note, big failure.
0: We saw some of those, too. We looked them up.
1: Yeah, you can see some. So what happened was that people started passing them in town because a lot of people couldn't read, and they looked so close to what a real note was, they just did it accidentally sometimes.
0: Thinking it was money.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. So he got into a little hot water over that one. But when it was explained to him how it was not going well for some of these poor folks, he readily agreed to pull them and not do that again. But it was a pretty good stunt.
0: Very good for advertising.
1: As we were learning about all of this advertisement and the way he ran the stores, the cartoons, I began to think of Trader Joe's. And I thought he would probably really have liked Trader Joe's.
0: He would have loved Trader Joe's.
1: For the next two decades, Lipton worked extremely hard. He built store after store, eventually having nearly 300. He was also traveling back and forth to America to buy stockyards and processing plants in Omaha, Nebraska, and Chicago, Illinois, all in the effort to cut out that middleman. He was doing very well. His business life was fantastic. He loved working. But then, in his personal life, he suffered a big loss.
0: So as we mentioned before, Lipton was very close to his mother, and they had such a great relationship, and he also learned so much from her. So in 1889, she passed away, and then the following spring, his father passed away. And referring back to Alec Waugh's book again, he says this, The next 10 years were the hardest of his life. In the following spring, his father died. He was now completely on his own. He had nothing to live for but his work, and he worked unsparingly. Which shows a lot about this man. It really does.
1: In the summer of 1890, Lipton took his first trip to Ceylon. Tea consumption had been increasing rapidly in Britain. And in fact, tea marketers had been trying for some time to have Lipton distribute their tea in his stores. Once again, he thought he could do that better himself. He had sent a scout ahead to prospect the business opportunities in Ceylon. And when Lipton arrived there, he found out possibilities and opportunities were excellent. So he went ahead and quickly purchased a tea estate. And that began a new lucrative
0: chapter in his life. So here you have Lipton on his first trip to Ceylon. He gets off the boat in the harbor of Colombo. And he goes directly to the GOH. And we now know that the GOH, from him writing it in his diary, is the Grand Oriental Hotel. Well, in Alec Waugh's book, he writes, Had Lipton any prescience as he drove that morning to the GOH, that he was on the brink of a whole reorientation of his life, that once again, that infallible sense of timing, which those who are born without it dismiss it as luck, was bringing the moment and the man together. The other quote I want to share from this book is, his shops had made him a millionaire. His tea made him a multimillionaire.
1: So to keep things going in the timeline of Thomas Lipton's life, we had uh, spoken earlier about 1897 being this huge year for him. And so now we're going to tell you what happened. Of course, you already know about the trip and the shipwreck. But when he got back to London... It was the Queen's Diamond Jubilee celebrating 60 years of her reign, and there were plans to have a big celebration. There was a letter written to the London Times by the Princess of Wales. Sal is going to read the letter, and this is in the Lipton storybook by Alec Waugh.
0: In the midst of all the many schemes and preparations for the commemoration of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, when everybody comes forward on behalf of some good cause— when schools, hospitals, and other charitable institutions have been so widely and liberally provided for, there seems to me to be one class that has been overlooked, the poorest of the poor in the slums of London. Might I plead for these, that they also should have some share in the festivities of that blessed day, and so remember to the end of their lives that great and good queen, whose glorious reign has, by the blessing of God, been prolonged for 60 years. Let us therefore provide these poor beggars and outcasts with a dinner or substantial meal during the week of the 22nd of June. I leave it to your kind and able organization to arrange that the very poor in all parts of London should be equally cared for.
1: So the Princess of Wales enclosed her check for $500, and Waugh reports this in dollars, making it easier for us to understand. And the goal was to raise $150,000. Lipton had already promised that he would supply all of the tea and sugar for the event. And later he was talking with the London mayor and asked him, how's the fund going? And the mayor said, well, not very well. We've only raised $25,000 of the 150 dollars So Lipton pulled out his checkbook and wrote a check for the balance, $125,000. That was a huge move. Lipton had asked the mayor to keep the gift anonymous. But word leaked out, and the press had been asking for a few days. They were even taking bets about who made the donation. There were other names brought out. Lipton was among some of the names that some of the reporters threw out there. But eventually it was revealed that it was him. He was also involved with another fund where he donated half a million dollars. And that was to help people that didn't have enough to eat. So those two acts combined propelled him into the higher categories of
0: life in London. Royal society. People took notice. Mm -hmm. Research has failed to reveal a single reference to Thomas Lipton in the London Times up to the end of December 1896. But from May 1897 onwards, scarcely a day passed in which there was not some reference to him in the London press. And at the end of that passage, uh, Alec Waugh says, within three months of his return from Ceylon, he was a public figure. And after that, it was. He was it, like a movie star yeah, in it, a way.
1: It went beyond. It went beyond. And so later in his life, there was some question asked of American tourists, the two Londoners that they most wanted to meet. And it was King Edward and Thomas Lipton. Yes. So. He was knighted in 1898,
0: year after the diary was written.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. And you could be knighted for acts of goodwill to the Commonwealth or to the crown. And so he was knighted, of course, for donating all of that money. Again, it propelled him into the upper levels, including a very close friendship with King Edward.
0: Yes, yes, that's right. And, you know, um, that brings up the point for me, too, when I read this passage just recently uh, from Alec Waugh about him being in the newspapers after that. Well, again, like we've told you, Lipton supposedly never kept a diary, but there were tons of scrapbooks that they found with newspaper clippings. And it would be interesting to see or research if you could find any newspaper clippings on Lipton pre eighteen. Ninety-seven. I don't think there'd be many. Maybe advertisements for his goods and stuff. But after that, the papers were flooded. And that's why he kept the scrapbooks. Yeah,
1: he was an absolute celebrity. He was. All right. Well, now we'll move on to the later chapters of Lipton's life. Well, you may remember that from the diary, we mentioned that he was very familiar with nautical terms. And he had a understanding of the sea he was able to talk with the captain and the guy didn't throw him off the bridge he kept him there and he because he knew he was knowledgeable about the sea so he starts this new chapter in 1899 that went all the way to 1930 he challenged for the america's cup five times yet he never won it his boats were called shamrock so each successive boat you know shamrock to Shamrock 3, up to Shamrock 5. And they had these rules that you challenged for the cup. You had to bring your boat by sea to where you were going to do the challenge. And it was in New York because the New York Yacht Club held the cup, and they did for many years. So each time he challenged, he was competing against them. He had to cross the ocean with the vessel and withstand storms and that kind of a voyage and then go racing. Well, the New York team didn't have to do that. So these 31 years of challenging for the America's Cup were the years that made Lipton famous in America and his tea, and people liked him.
0: He was like a celebrity.
1: Even though he never won five attempts, he was presented with a $5,000 trophy that was created for him because of his sportsmanship. He was a good guy. He wanted to win. He actually made a joke when they gave it to him. He said, I hope I don't ever become satisfied with just hoisting this so he really did want to win that thing but it didn't happen we're going to end this episode talking about Lipton's seat
0: and that's actually a place a seat that he built out of stone in Sri Lanka where he could sit at the top the very top and have an incredible view of of Sri Lanka, his estates.
1: It is a beautiful place. You can see it on the internet. You, you can't,
0: can. All you have to do is look it up, and you will see. It's highly visited. A lot of people go and see it.
1: One of my favorite videos was the motorcycle ride, where the guys rode from Hapatule all the way up to Lipton Seat and the scenery. And there's some pretty good drop-offs off that side.
0: And I believe... Narrow road. Oh, no, narrow road. <laughs> I remember telling you that I'm afraid of heights, and I would not have... Gone on the motorcycle like that. It was quite the road to get up to Lipton's Seat.
1: It's a beautiful spot, and he's there's a statue of him up there.
0: If you're ever in Sri Lanka, if we're ever in Sri Lanka, it's definitely a place I want to go.
1: I'm going by motorcycle.
0: <laughs> oh, I'll walk
1: it. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this story as much as we did. Join us again for more Diary Discoveries. For more information about Sally and her diaries, go to Sally'sDiaries.com.